Yeah, so this week went a little better. Oh, yeah, I recorded. I did record. This week went a little better. Um, my car works now. Um, I got some sleep, so it's a much better spot than I would have been doing this last week. The, um, after I announced that my car, the catalytic converter for my car was stolen, two people emailed me articles. Apparently, this is a thing now. Uh, palladium has gone up in price 50% since August. It's now more valuable than gold, and it's sitting in your catalytic converters. So I guess if you're broke, you can cut your own out. But they are stealing them, so mine is fixed, now waiting to be stolen again. I'm not sure how to stop this. So um, I was excited because we have two weeks on communion, or now three weeks on communion. Uh, I'm going to do this week and next week. Yeah, I'm here next week. And then Terry will take us home. So it's communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, um, I thought originally those were, not originally like an hour ago, but originally when I was starting church that those were three names for three very different things. Um, they are three names for the same thing, uh, more common in different denominations, but they all just basically have a different meaning. Lord's Supper gives you an idea of where this started. This is Jesus' Supper. Communion, or Holy Communion, depending on which church you're in, gives you an idea of what we're doing. We're communing with someone. We're coming together and having something in common. And Eucharist just literally means Thanksgiving. So I will probably use communion and Lord's Supper uh, interchangeably throughout the next two weeks. I will almost never use Eucharist because I just don't think in that term. So communion, it's a mystery. I was raised Christian. Um, That is to say, I grew up white in the South and I wasn't Jewish. Um, And it's kind of like that's the way I defaulted to. Uh, so we went to church periodically. Um, I wish I knew what sort of church we'd stop into occasionally when I was growing up. I don't. I don't remember taking communion there. I remember they did do communion in one of them when I was about seven. And I mostly remember because I was really irritated and didn't get a snack. Um, the first church we went to with any regularity was a Methodist church. And the reason we went there was because in sixth grade, I thought a girl I was interested went to the church And we were members before I realized she didn't go there. (laughs) Um, She just went to the lock-in. So don't take dating advice from me, middle scorers. Um, But we went to, we'd go there periodically. Uh, We were not Christmas and Easter Christians. We were like four random weeks in summer Christians. I don't remember ever doing communion there, but I imagine we did. Uh, my first major church after um, I actually started following Jesus was a uh, vineyard church. And again, I don't remember ever doing communion. I imagine we must have once or twice. Now, Jesse's shaking her hand. I don't know where you would have fitted in the uh, liturgy. I mean, there was worship songs, announcements, offering songs, sermon, worship songs, prayer. There was a lot of singing. Uh, and I mean, you, yeah, you didn't, I mean, one thing was a logistical nightmare for like 800 people running through communion. So I forget, can forget how they could have pulled it off. And secondly, yes, um, it would have meant we couldn't sing 20 courses of the same song. Um, so also it pushed against my own inclinations um, as a Christian. So my lack of understanding of communion was partially based in that. Um, scripture came very natural to me. Um, I was a person who was at home in books. So when I became a Christian, I just read the Bible. Um, and not just I'm pious, because I was usually high as a kite while reading it, but that's what I did for the first like six months or so. Um, high on life. 
high in life at 3 a.m. Exactly what was happening. Um, but then as I grew as a Christian, different aspects of our Christian practices became more formative. Those repeated choruses actually did teach me something of how I could encounter God in worship and expect to encounter him there. Um, and then eventually prayer, which was another spot that didn't just come naturally to me, became more a potent part of my life just because life circumstances forced it upon me. I was in a position where calling out to God was a necessity. But communion remained distant. Uh, this was troubling, partially because I was growing in my understanding of both church history and the Bible, and it seemed to factor in heavily there. The early church, it was expected. Uh, the Acts 2 passage, where it talks about the things they did right after Jesus' Jesus's sermon at Pentecost, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, um, speaks. One of the elements they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. And while that did likely mean going house to house, it also almost certainly has a reference to regularly taking in this communion or this Lord's Supper that they had been instructed to take. Um, similarly, if you, Paul assumes it. When he's giving the instructions to in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't break and make an argument for why they should or give instructions on how they should. It's more going, you're doing it wrong in this particular way, not why you should do it. He simply assumes that it's part of their life. And then there's references from the first centuries of the church that speaks of this taking this meal together as being a regular part of worship, weekly, generally speaking, in the early church. But it was still distant for me and my ability to comprehend what we were trying to do. It, it doesn't make sense in the same way the other aspects made sense. Um, I could understand the impact of words. I could understand even why we would talk to God. But pausing and breaking up the continuity of a meal of a church service to get a mouthful of bread and a little bit of juice just didn't. Why? Uh, we're instructed to do it, but why? Um, I have slowly, so to some extent, I was indifferent to the fact that I didn't ever see it in the vineyard. It always seemed like it would be neat to try, I guess, but it wasn't really something that I was looking for. Even when we first, when I first came here, back when this was Junction, we didn't do communion all that regularly. I think I might have done it here for the first time after being a Christian, but it wasn't a regular occurrence. We did it periodically up until... That was a few years back now. We've been doing it weekly for a while. Uh, it's good because as I progressed my Christianity, I was starting to be troubled by my lack of understanding and our lack of practice. <coughs> Part of that was the writers I was read reading. I was reading older authors for whom it was, again, an assumed continual practice. And also reading newer authors who were influenced by our authors, where it was something that was regular and important, but I still couldn't grasp why. At the same time, I was growing more familiar with scripture and the shadows and the echoes that you find in scripture and how so many of those things run and connect to this meal in some way. And so as we get up here each week, it's so easy to tie whatever we've been talking about to this meal because it connects to so many things. And at the same time, I think one of the biggest changes over the course of my 30s was coming to realize that just knowing something wasn't enough. I came from a very cognitive person. I like ideas. I like studying. My first 
instinct is to go grab a book when I have something new that I want to learn. The trouble was learning that simply mastering a fact did not mean it translated into a changed behavior. Coming to understand that this was the truth didn't mean that I then lived in accordance with it. And basically, repeatedly just really focusing in on how true this truth was didn't always seem to have the impact into my life. I came to see the importance of practices, the importance of acting that actually changed behavior. Uh, not in a legalistic, I'm going to earn something, but simply because the repetition of doing things, the repetition of prayer, the repetition of scripture reading, even when it's not a popping study, those things slowly transform. So it's the rituals, uh, those little liturgies of life that transform who we are. And the liturgy of the church is intended to work the same way. These things where what we do also has a transformative impact on us. Ms. when I left my water on that bench, you could toss it to me. So I came to see it as something important, but it still left lots of questions. For one thing, the older authors that I was reading disagree on it a lot. Um, you read the, early, the main three names of the early Reformation, you got Svengali, Calvin, and Luther, all have very, three very different takes on what exactly is happening um, during communion, and three very different takes that during that very volatile time, they went to war over periodically. And then the scriptures direct references to it to try and sort out that way, they remain sparse. Um, if you have something that's directly applying to the Lord's Supper, you basically have three passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the section in 1 Corinthians. Not like there's the book of the Lord's Supper that we can nicely draw upon for the timing, what it means, and just pull everything together in a nice tight package to be published. And that led to the challenge, which has continually been, which is the same thing I think we run into in a lot of things we know are important to do, like meeting together for prayer, where Great, I understand cognitively it's important, but why? What is it accomplishing? What are we actually doing when we come up, form a line, grab some bread, and go back and take of it together? What's actually occurring there? And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at it from three lenses, essentially, when speaking of when Jesus is talking about do this in remembrance of me, of how it's looking back, of how it's looking forward, and how it's looking at the present time. And we're going to manage to cover backwards and forwards today presence is actually much longer, which is for next week. So to do that, as I said, there's not a lot of passages in scripture that really cover this. So I want to start, but I'm going to go to one of them. I'm going to do Luke's, largely because it's the one that ties together both the narrative of Matthew and Mark to what Paul records of do this in remembrance of me. That in remembrance of me only shows up in the gospels in Luke. It's not in Matthew or Mark's version. And this is not a troubling fact. It's not like there's a disagreement here in the uh, Gospels. Each of the Gospels is written with a selective lens of which facts they want to record and how they want to arrange them. Um, but we're going to take it from Luke's Gospel, which is in chapter 22. Starting in verse 14. Now this, the setting here is... Jesus has, around chapter 9, they declare he's the Messiah, and he starts going towards Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, convicted, and put to death, and then rise again. 
He teaches along the way. He comes to Jerusalem. He knows this time is coming near for his death. And he sends people to go follow a donkey to find a room for the Passover. One of the weirder sections of the Gospels. And that's where they are. This is the last, the Lord's Supper. As the heading in my Bible says, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. That is, Jesus reclined at the table. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you. Sorry, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them... It could be who was going to do this. Spoiler alert, that was Judas. Um, I'm not actually going to speak to that section of the passage, just to, except for the note that it's remarkable that the institution of the Last Supper, that that last night when Jesus is giving his final words to his disciples before his death, and he's having an intimate meal with him, that Judas is there. It had to be a really awkward dinner for Judas, for one thing. Um, to be here and to hear these words, knowing you've already set in motion the death of this man. But then from Jesus' perspective, he is sitting here giving off the final, the last things he's going to say before he is taken away from these people who have been with him this whole time, before they are scattered. He has his last chance to talk with him, and he lets the guy who is going to betray him be at the table. Yeah. Jesus. Um, That's remarkable. But he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's where we get that passage, and that's where we get this idea that we're supposed to continue it. If it wasn't for that, or that phrase in this passage, or the fact that Paul also records in 1 Corinthians, we wouldn't really have an indication this is supposed to be continued. When we read Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, they leave out that section, and you get a nice meal that Jesus is having with the disciples, giving them this bread, giving them this wine, and that's it. So our continuing practice hinges on that phrase of do this in remembrance of me. Unfortunately, in remembrance of me is not the most common phrase in English. Don't think I've used it this week or probably this lifetime, except for in this context. Um, my hunch, which was roughly confirmed by a Google search, is that we only really use this phrase, mostly in reference to this passage, outside of that when speaking of someone who's dead. It shows up at funerals and it shows up in books about people usually who died and we want to remember them fondly. It's either in funerals or it's in books about people or books or tombs about people who did something impressive. It's like in remembrance of the fallen soldier. I think there was a book that's in remembrance of Martin Luther King. So that's where it shows up. 
which means it has a very static impression in our minds. And remembrance of somebody is basically a fancy way of saying remembering, which is to pause and recollect and maybe have a sentimental feeling about this person and appreciation for what they did before turning and going back to your regular life. Like, I went to my grandfather's funeral, and it was in remembrance of Charles. But it wasn't like at that point I turned and was shaped as a person of Charles. Or the fallen soldier, same idea. It's for the, this idea of in remembrance is generally to go and remember fondly what they were like. But then to go about your business, maybe a little more thankful, but largely unchanged. And if that's all communion is, you can see why it gets cut from most church services. Because if all it is is to pause and think about how nice Jesus was, to recollect of what he did, and mentally and maybe feel a little warm, warmth from it, it's easier just to have everybody stand, and I'll talk for two minutes with your eyes closed about how Jesus died on this cross for us. It's impressive, it's powerful, but you can see how it just get, the bread seems to almost be superfluous to this whole experience. Why bread? Why juice? If all it is is something to remember fondly. Fortunately, we don't need to rely purely upon the English idea of in remembrance of to get a feel for how we're supposed to actually engage with the remembering here. Uh, this isn't something that just came out of left field and Jesus scoots on somewhere else. This is all said in the, con- in the context. Note how he puts this, when he's, when he, the first thing Jesus says to them. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This wasn't a ha- happenstance meal. This wasn't something that just happened to occur on the way to the cross, like they were going there and Jesus was just, he was on his way to get arrested, but they were hungry, so they stopped for a meal and happened to have this conversation and Jesus like on the spot, great, I got some bread and some wine, I'll make a quick theological point. That's not what happened here. He earnestly desired to have this meal with them. This was something that was planned. And as you see in the end passage where he talks about his death, The Son of Man goes as has been determined. Again, it's something that's happening with a plan. He has known where he's going the whole time, and he's desired to have this meal with him as well. This meal was something he planned because he wanted to say something specific. Similarly, it was not a meal that he just placed some random spot along his life. He earnestly desired to have it with him before he suffered. He knows where he's going. He knows who is at the table with him. He knows what's going to happen that night. He knows what his weekend is going to be like. So he earnestly desires to have this meal before them. He is placing this in the context of his death and resurrection. Very close so that we cannot think of this without considering his death and resurrection tied together. But that's not the only event he ties it to. Because it isn't just that he earnestly desires to have a meal with them. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is not just any meal. And again, this was a planned 
scheduled meal, so it's not a coincidence, it is the Passover. He has earnestly desired to have this meal, the Passover, with them so he can tell them something. So he can share this bread and share this wine with them with a purpose. So what's the Passover? We have to go way back, a few millennia in history before this. This is a Jewish feast that has occurred pretty much since the beginning of Israel as a nation. Well before that, like 2,000 years prior to this event, roughly, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, and his 12 sons go down into Egypt. From the Palestinian area, they go down into Egypt to escape a famine. They are welcomed there with open arms because one of the brothers had gone ahead, Joseph, and saved Egypt from this very famine. So Joseph's a big man in Egypt. His brothers and his father and their families come down, about 70 people, go into Egypt, and they get a nice land called Goshen where they can be shepherds in the middle of Egypt with the favor of the Pharaoh. Cut forward about 400 years, and they're still in this land, and they have grown into a populous nation now. The 70 people has become multiple hundred thousand. It's become a nation. At the same time, the pharaoh, who was extremely thankful for them, has died, and multiple pharaohs have gone, and like a game of telephone, what they did has slowly gotten forgotten until they have become a people that is, are treated as slaves and viewed as a problem. Who was once the savior of Egypt is now the slave of Egypt and is oppressed and they're putting their children to death so that they don't become too populous and join with an enemy when they come to invade. So this is the state of Israel at this point. And under this oppression, they cry out to God for assistance. And he raises up a prophet, Moses, who goes to Pharaoh, who's out in the wilderness, comes back to Pharaoh. When we go into how he came to be where he was, but he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Just like in that low bass tone that it comes in the Psalms. Pharaoh's essential answer is why he's like, well, God wants them to go worship him out in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's answer is, who's this God you're speaking of? Go away. To which God's response is, we'll show him who this God is. And he starts to send plagues. He sends nine progressively worse plagues upon Egypt in an effort to get Pharaoh to let Israel go. What's interesting is the plagues start, they're very general at first. The plagues affect everyone. The Nile turns to blood for everyone. The frogs are everywhere. But as they move along, they start to differentiate between whom they're hitting. Hail hits the land of Egypt, nothing falls in Goshen. It's dark in Egypt. It's fine in Goshen. This is the pattern. And oftentimes Pharaoh's like, okay, you can go, just make this plague stop. And as soon as the plague stops, I've changed my mind. They're staying. So finally, they get to the tenth plague. This plague is that every, the firstborn of every family, human and animal, the highest up in Egypt, down to the lowest person, and all the livestock, the firstborn male, will be killed. And the odd thing is, this time, it doesn't seem like God can just go, I'll do this land and not that one. Instead, he has everybody in Israel 
slaughter a lamb, put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, then eat the lamb with unleavened bread that night with their sandals on ready to go. Because that night while they're eating, it's an angel of death crosses over the land, passing over every house where he sees the blood upon the doors and the firstborn of everywhere else is killed. And it's through that that Pharaoh's grip is weakened. The oppression of Pharaoh upon the Israelites is broken, and he lets them go. And then, as they leave in the wilderness, they are instructed to have this feast every year. Yeah, I won't read it. They were instructed to have this feast every year. They are supposed to find a lamb to eat it together. They're not supposed to break its bones. They're not supposed to let anything go. They're supposed to have it with their shoes on. They're supposed to not have, uh, unleavened, not have leavened bread. They're supposed to have unleavened bread. In remembrance of this event. Because this was the event whereby they were rescued from oppression and made into a people. And that's the event where Jesus sets this last supper. Now, what's interesting in the, re- the retelling of this event, this Passover that Jesus has, something's missing entirely. We have bread, we have wine, we have people, we have dining. There's no lamb mentioned the whole time. It's because the lamb's talking the whole time. This is made explicit in John's gospel. And he opens, the first time you see Jesus, John the Baptist, here comes the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then when he's upon the cross, it says, not a bone of his was broken to fulfill the scripture. Which scripture is it fulfilling? Not some weird prophecy about a guy who's going to die on a cross and not have his bones broken. It's fulfilling the scripture that instructs the lamb's bones not to be broken at Passover. Because he is the Passover lamb. What was an image has now been fulfilled in its fullness in Jesus So he's setting this meal in the midst, this supper is set in the midst of this Passover, and that's somewhere where we get an idea of what it means to remember this and what we're remembering. We're not just remembering what Jesus did or what kind of guy he was, remembering what he accomplished. And we're reenacting something of it, the same way they reenacted something in the Passover, to give it more meat. Israel was not just to be a people who were remembering what had happened to them. They didn't remember this every year just to remember, oh yeah, God did that for us once. They were remembering who they were as a people. They were a people of the Passover. They were a people who were brought into existence through a Passover, through the Passover. They were remembering this so that it might shape how they live now. They were supposed to remember as they went into this land they were given that they were rescued by God and he could be listened to and trusted for how they live now. Whenever they saw threats from the outside, they were supposed to remember that this God who had delivered them would continue to deliver them. They were supposed to have trust in his promises would be fulfilled because he had been who he was. Repeatedly, God refers to himself in the Old Testament as the God who rescued them from Egypt. He's referred to as the one who brought them out 
And it's not just because it makes it so it's not confusing who God is. It's reminding them of something fundamental of their relationship to him. He is the God who rescued them from slavery that they might be his. And every time they forgot that, every time they saw some threat to their their livelihoods, every time they saw some threat to their nation, every time they saw something that else they could gather that looked nice and they forgot who they were when they felt those threats come in, if they forgot that God was the one who was going to rescue them, their inclination was to look to either idolatry or to a foreign wicked nation to deliver them. Which is something we need to remember as well today. Fear like that makes you make bad choices. It makes you seek salvation in wicked things. Something the church always needs to remember. So what we see in this remembrance that Jesus is asking us to do as we remember him in this supper is remembering something that was done. We're supposed to remember his death upon the cross, whereby judgment came upon the forces that oppress us, upon the death, upon sin, upon Satan, and it came in full force, but we were passed over because of Jesus' blood. See, the challenge is, we are people who are oppressed by Satan, sin, and death. We're also a people who are really fond of Satan, sin, and death. And it's intertwined in who we are, how we live. And you're sitting here like, I'm not, a, I'm not fond of Satan. I get it. No one's, well, most people aren't explicitly fond of Satan or sin or death. It's just that we have aligned ourselves and are continually aligning ourselves to those powers that are opposed to God. Those powers that bring death with them. We are ruled by a fear of death. It's intertwined into who we are. So the question is, how do you deliver us? The question would be, how would you deliver Israel if Israel was also the Pharaoh? Or at least was aligned with Pharaoh. And what we get there is, again, similarly, you have overlapping lands. How, do you, how did he differentiate between them as he passed through and he pours out his wrath upon death and sin and Satan? If we are clutching so tightly to it, if we're so inclined to do it, if we have, over the course of our lives, shown ourselves to be fond of it, he does it by marking us with his blood so that when the, he can pour his full wrath upon those three things, destroying them without destroying us. So we are to remember, as the Jews were to remember, that they were a people freed from oppression through that Passover. We are to remember that we are a people who have been freed from the oppression of Satan, sin, and death at the cross. And we remember that we are today a people who were freed from the oppression of Satan, sin, and death at the cross. We're to remember that that happened in our lives, to remember what we, who we are as a people that we might live that way into the future. 
which gets to the other vantage point that comes here. Though Jesus does say, do this in remembrance of me, he is also looking forward in this passage. And it doesn't take some weird exegetical backflip to get there. Jesus himself puts it there. In verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he takes the cup and he tells them to divide amongst themselves. And then in verse um, 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus says, I will not eat this Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He then leaves, is arrested, beaten, and put to death. But he's implying that he's going to eat again. Because he he doesn't say, I'm never going to eat this meal again. He says, I will not eat it again until. He is looking forward in this passage to a future when he will have this meal again. So there's a remembrance here that's also remembering where he is taking us. And again, we see a Passover connection. Israel was not passed over while God dealt very harshly with the Egyptians so that they might have a leg up in the Egyptian economy after the 10th plague. They were passed over so that he might take them from that land to another one. They had a different home. They were freed from leeks and onions, which they fixated on for some reason, while they were slaves, to go to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Again, food's all over the Bible. Now, to be honest, of the two of them, between milk and honey, which sounds kind of disgusting, and leeks and onion, which sound delicious, I don't think that's the way it was supposed to be going. I think for some reason milk and honey is supposed to sound better to us than it does to me today. But the idea is they were going from slavery in this land where they had one food to a place that is again categorized by freedom in another one. They're going from being servants of Pharaoh to servants of God. They were going from being put to death where their kids were supposed to be born, killed as soon as they were born to a people that were going to be more numerous than the sand. They went from here because they had somewhere to go. They were passed over to be taken to a home. We too need to remember that. We were not simply, we did not simply have our sins covered so that we might, I don't know, have a more peaceful life here. Full stop. Or as my daughter went when she was watching me type my sermon, you put periods at the end of every sentence? Um, we don't do these things just so that we can be, have our best life now. There is a future that we are meant to be looking towards at all times. We're supposed to remember the fulfillment of all of this. We, are, we have a taste now with a fullness to come. The Israelites had food in the wilderness. Milk and honey was still the target food. It wasn't a lifelong supply of manna. It was milk and honey. We are looking now towards a future. We have to remember that our chains were broken so that we might go to a new city. A city whose foundations were set by God that would never be shaken. 
So these are two of the things we remember as we come to, the, to do Passover. We remember we look back. We see how this is tied into a fuller story. And we look forward knowing that we have a future from this. We remember that we were once slaves to Satan's sin and death. Oftentimes willing, happy slaves to Satan's sin and death. And we have had that power crushed over us, that God has come in full judgment upon that, but passed over us to save us out of that land, to take us to a new home. That's part of what we remember when we come to take communion. As I said, I did not have a conclusion written. Because what I want to talk about next week is that does put us in a place, though, that's almost like the Christian stereotype. We've been saved for heaven and good luck. Do as well as you can, work hard, vote right, maybe you do okay. There's something that happens in the middle of all of this. And that's what I want to talk about next week. Yeah.